Go ahead and be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Thank you, worship team. My name is Pastor Jared. It is great to be with you. I love coming to Syracuse, and it's been a little while. It's been a little while since I was here last, but again, I love it here. Um, can't wait for whatever the next season is for us as a, as a Syracuse campus, whatever God has in store for us, but I am excited to be with you here today, and I get the privilege of continuing on in week four of our five-week series on Jonah, and maybe you missed a few of the weeks. I'll just recap it real quick, and Jonah is a roller coaster of emotions for Jonah, up and downs to say the least. But in week one, God calls out to Jonah. God calls out and says, Jonah, I want to use you as my messenger. I have plans for you, Jonah. And I want you to send this message that I'm going to give you. Go to Nineveh and share it with them. And Jonah politely says, no, thank you, and runs in the opposite direction. Now he had a hostile heart towards the Ninevites, they were hostile people. They were evil and wicked people, as Scripture defines them. And they, they were hostile towards the Israelites. So there was a lot of bad things that Jonah had experienced and witnessed himself. And so he really didn't have a whole lot of love or compassion for these people. So he runs. He finds himself aboard a ship. He finds himself being overthrown into the depths of the ocean because God sends a storm. And then God sends this great fish, and it says it swallowed up Jonah. And that was chapter 1. And we see that God used this great fish to really draw Jonah back to God. Now, I don't know what it's like to be in the belly of a great fish, but if I was for three days and I was still alive, I would have called out to God. And that's what happens in chapter 2. Jonah cries out to God. He says, God, I need you. God, help me. And even vows, God, I will vow to keep all my promises. I will obey you. And that's how chapter 2 ends. And then in chapter 3, Jonah gets this second chance. You know, remembering if it's God's will, it will happen no matter what. And how Jonah tried to take control of the scenario, God is saying, no, I'm still going to use you. It gives him a second chance. Jonah goes into the city of Nineveh and he preaches. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And so there's, this, there's a population of about 120,000 and instantly people respond in repentance, that there's this change, and they turn from their evil ways, and now they turn to God. And it's a beautiful picture of a merciful and gracious God that we serve. And the Ninevites are experiencing this. And then we go into chapter 4. So this just happened. You would think, okay, chapter 4 is going to be a celebration in the city of Nineveh. Okay, Jonah's on board. He's obeying God. He came and gave the message. People responded. God spared them. He didn't destroy Nineveh. People came to faith. You'd think there's going to be this festival. Everyone's going to be praising and worshiping God in chapter 4. But no, that is not chapter 4. As a matter of fact, this is chapter 4. And we're talking about Jonah here. And this is one of the most embarrassing chapters in all of Scripture. And what we're going to witness here, rather than a celebration, is Jonah, the missionary of God at this moment, bringing them the message, is going to throw a temper tantrum. Now, we've all been there, especially when we were young, and it was our responsibility of our parents and us as parents to break that of our children, because what happens when we throw a temper tantrum is that we're being told to do something we didn't want to do. And this is basically what Jonah, in the story of Jonah, this is what's happening to him. 
God's asking him to do something. He says no. And we're going to see in chapter 4 that he throws a temper tantrum. But it's not just Jonah. When we look into the, the sports world, we see a lot of adult men throwing temper tantrums. Back in 1985, I was actually watching this game live. It was on our 15-inch black and white TV back in 1985, but I was watching it live. And it was the Indiana Hoosiers playing Purdue in a basketball game. Bobby Knight is the coach. He led uh, the Indiana Hoosiers to three NCAA championships. And he gets teed up. He was on the refs, and he's just barking at the refs, and they teed him up. And he didn't like this, and he was angry, and he allowed his emotions to get out of control. He grabs a chair and flings it across the basketball court, all the way to the other side. And if you watch this again, you'll see that there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of students and cameramen, and they're all sitting on the floor. There's this one kid that kind of stops it because it was still moving as it was all the way past him. He caught it so it wouldn't hit the people to his left. And it's unfortunate because I think for most people, this got national news big time, as in when you really behave like this, as it should, that more people remember Bobby Knight for that than all of his hard work of coaching and his three NCAA championships that he accomplished with his teams in Indiana. And I also remember witnessing for the first time, I think I was around 10 when I started sitting down with my, my dad, who liked to play tennis, and he introduced me to the game, and I started watching tennis on television, and I saw this man this young man, and he was just barking at the chair umpire. That's what they're called. They sit up, you know, elevated, and they have a nice little umbrella covering them. It's a very good job. But if things go bad, and Johnny Mac, John McEnroe loved to get on those umpires when they screwed up or when he felt his opinion was better or right over theirs. And he would bark and bark, and I can remember watching this, and the chair umpires really didn't know how to really handle this when he hit the scene, because this is tennis. This isn't football. This isn't boxing. This is tennis. And there had never really been this personality to hit the scene. And I remember all these temper tantrums, just about every time he played, he would throw one of these and just bark, bark, bark orders at the chair umpire. And for that reason, I couldn't stand them. I couldn't stand any of the Americans. Back then, I didn't really understand the American players versus, you know, the European players. My favorite player was Bjorn Borg because he never said anything. He didn't show any emotion out there. But I do remember reacting to Johnny Max. You know, we're friends. You know, that's, that's, how, that, yeah, that's, how we, that's how we do it. But it is interesting to me how that stands out. And we're about to see this in Scripture and man, I would hate to be Jonah where the history of mankind is going to be able to look back and read about one of my temper tantrums. Yes, I've thrown temper tantrums. And it's in scripture. And every generation after is going to read about this again and again and again. But before we get to it, well, we're going to get to it, but we're going to read the entire chapter. So be patient. Jonah 4, there's 11 verses we're going to read. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Remember, he predicted in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. 
The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted. Even angry enough to die? Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? All right, so let's unpack this. We're going to look at three points. Here's the first one. It's embarrassing when your attitude toward God gets exposed. Back to Jonah 1. It said, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah. So we can see Jonah was not on board with God's plans. That's why in chapter 1 he ran. He fled. He tried to distance himself as far from Nineveh as he could. He knew he couldn't hide from God. He knew he couldn't run out, outrun God. But he just tried to distance himself because he did not want to go deliver this message. So his plans did not align with God's plans. And I think as we get through this and, and we go through this, yes, we're going to be picking on Jonah. But I think there's a lot of ways that we can relate to Jonah there's many ways that I feel like, over my history and my relationship with God, there's been plans that God has put before me, and I said, nah, no thanks, God, that we kind of pick and choose. When I think about all the relationships that God has had and allowed me to be a part of, I, I know for certain there's times where I've failed God's plan in some of those relationships. And I know there's some relationships that were never reconciled, and God is a, has the heart to reconciliation. So when you think about just life and you think about relationships and you think about singleness, are you honoring God? Are you following God's plan for you? When you think about your marriage, are you following God's plan for you? When you think about all your coworkers and the work relationships and the friend relationships, are you following God's plan? Do any of those relationships need healing? Do any of those relationships need reconciled? That's, that's kind of a a first attempt as we start challenging ourselves with this approach that we can say no to God, just like Jonah said no to God. But it's not just about relationship. God wants us to surrender to all his leading and all the plans that he has for us, including our finances. Are you aligning yourself with God's will in your finances? Are you following God's plan for your finances? And many of us are going to come to this point and say, no, we're not. We're very much in control of our own finances. We're, we're not allowing God to speak truth to us. And when I, as we go on and, and we think about all the responsibilities that God has given his followers, because I can remember coming to faith and I can remember sitting in a church just like this. I was in the seats looking up at the pastor and he was talking about discipleship. And I was like, well, I don't know. I'm not ready for discipleship. And I knew right then and there God was going to do something. But at that moment, 
I was like, no, I'd rather leave that for somebody else. And I know, as an early Christian, there was many times, just like Jonah, God was challenging me, God was asking me to do something, and I just simply said no. And I just want, want you to take inventory, because I think if we go through the book of Jonah and we just focus on Jonah, I think we're missing how God is speaking to us and that there's many times in our lives that we are saying no to God and we're not allowing God to lead those plans, that we take the rain from God just like Jonah did in chapter 1 and he tried to go this, you know, this other way. We are also guilty of that same thing. And then we continue on reading. He says, so he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. And then this is that temper tantrum at its highest point here. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. If what I predicted, God, that in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed, there was not any doubt in that. There's not a question mark after that. Now God knew what he was going to do. God did not change his mind. God knew what he was going to do. Jonah even knew what God was probably going to do because he says it right here and he said it back in chapter 1. But it's important to understand in, in poor Jonah's heart. He just has this hardened heart for these people that he would rather be dead than witness them turning to God and allowing a merciful and gracious God, forgiving them of their sins. This is just incredible to me. Just incredible that Jonah would come to a place where he would rather be dead than watch and, pre, and, pre, and ha, allow this prediction to come true. So my hope is that, unlike Jonah, that we would align our plans with God's plan, allow God's leading in every part of our life, in every aspect of our life, look to what God wants for us and align our hearts with God's heart. So that's the first point. Here's the second point. It's embarrassing how little we understand God's mercy. So just after he said that, God, I'd rather be dead than witness this. Here's what it says in verse 4. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Jonah, do you have the right to be angry about my merciful and gracious heart saving people? Is it right for you to be angry about this? Because here's what's going on. Jonah has drawn a line and said, the Ninevites are on this side of salvation. They're beyond saving. He says they're not worth saving. They are evil and wicked people. And I think for us, many people at times will draw this line. Well, that person, because of what they have done or what they are doing, there's no way that God can forgive them. There's just no way God can forgive them. Look at their evilness. Look at their wickedness. And the minute we do that, what we've done, now again, this is in the Old Testament. Jesus hasn't come. But now knowing the details of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, when we, when we draw a line in the sand and we say there are people that are not worth saving, what we've done is we've changed the gospel message. Now it's not a message of grace. Now it's a message of grace plus works, that you have to do something in order not to go beyond that line, that you need to get on this side of the line. 
And that's what Jonah's communicating here. His heart is hardened toward these people, and he believes that they're not worth saving. But because God is merciful, and there is no one outside of God's mercy, no one. You can think of the most evil people the world has ever seen. Ever seen. You can talk about the Hitlers, the Osama bin Ladens, the, 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 the rulers even currently right now that are at war. And you can think of just their hearts. And you can think that they're outside of God's love. They are not. They are not. No one is outside of God's mercy. And Jesus takes a, an opportunity in, in Matthew chapter 20 to teach on this. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like this. He says, listen, if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, it's like this. And he uses this landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers. So this is a parable. This is one of the stories that Jesus is using to get his message across. And he says he agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. So he meets early. The landowner goes into the city, finds workers, and sends them out to the vineyard. Then again at 9 o'clock, does the same thing, goes into those who are not working, goes into the city and says, do you want to work? Yes, sends them out in the vineyard. He does this again at noon. He does it again at 3 p.m., then again at 5 p.m. And then later that evening, he calls the foreman. He says, bring the workers in. We're going to pay them. And he starts with the the ones who started at 5 p.m. And all the workers are witnessing them. And he gave them a full day's wage. And so instantly, right then and there, the ones who started early in the morning, the ones that started at 9 and at noon, they're like, okay, we're going to make more money. We're going to get paid more. If he's paying them a full wage and they started at 5 p.m. and they only had to work a few hours, we're going to get a nice little bonus here. But as the foreman's handing out the money, it's the same amount to everyone. And those who started earlier in the day said, wait, This isn't fair. We worked more hours than they did. And this is Jesus' response. He said, he answered one of them, friend, I haven't been unfair. Didn't you agree to work all day for the usual wage? Take your money and go. I wanted to pay this last worker the same as you. Is it against the law for me to do what I want to do with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? So there's just this level playing field. It doesn't really depend on how bad you are or how good you are because bad people don't go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And there's no merit on goodness or badness. And so it's so important to understand these details of what Jesus is communicating. There is nobody outside of God's mercy because I am a merciful God. He tells us and I am slow to get angry and I'm compassionate. And I want to care for you, and I want all my children to come to faith. And we see this in the city of Nineveh, 120,000 people. Maybe there was a few that fell off. But so many people, because God's heart broke for them. This is that Imago Dei, that we're all born in the image of God. That's something we all have in common. Every person who's been born into this world, that means every person has value, regardless of their wickedness, regardless of how evil they are. And Jonah does not get it. He can't get past it, and he's struggling with this to the point where he would rather be dead than witness God forgiving them and allowing them to live on. My hope is that we'd have a heart that wants to align with God's heart, but man, we serve an amazing, merciful, and gracious God. 
And here's the third point. It's embarrassing how we care more about our own comfort than people. Man, it's so interesting how the, the book of Jonah ends in chapter 4. Because now we're going to be looking at Jonah's comfort. And what God does is he gives him another chance. Another chance to respond with a different heart. But unfortunately, Jonah does not. And here's what it says in Jonah 4, 5, and 6. It says, Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. So we see now God is still caring for, for Jonah right here in this moment, and he's providing shade, a lot like the umpire in tennis that has that little umbrella over them. It's important because it gets hot without that, and we're going to see that here in a minute. But God is providing He's caring for Jonah still through this attitude that Jonah has, and that's important for us to know. This eased his discomfort, it says, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Amen. Going on, but God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Here he is again. You see this extreme behavior in Jonah. When he doesn't get his way, he's like, I'd rather be dead. And here it is again. He's so uncomfortable that he would rather die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he says, he exclaimed. We see this, this God providing comfort, and then, yes, giving him a little bit of a taste of what Jonah wanted to do to the city of Nineveh. He wanted God's wrath to be poured out. And now we see Jonah experiencing this heat and this wind, and it's, it's, it's a miserable moment. I'll give Jonah that. But it's leading him to discomfort, and he's starting to get a taste of God's wrath. And yet he does not want to experience it. He goes, I'd rather be dead than be living like this. It's all about Jonah's comfort in this third point, and that's how God kind of ends the book with this. But I want to challenge us, because I live a pretty comfortable life. I'm in the ministry, I'm doing God's work, but I'm, I'm pretty darn comfortable, and sometimes I look out into the world, and I see missionaries, and I see other people doing God's work, and they're not near as comfortable as I am. I mean, I have some nice luxury cars, and if I get home and it's too hot, I can make the house cooler, I can make shade by going in and out of my house. I also, if I need heat, I can, you know, turn the heater on. If I'm thirsty, I can go open the fridge. If I need ice, I can go to the freezer. Like, there's luxuries, and there's things that are comfortable for us. But that's, and that's all good, because those are all gifts from God. But now I want to just look at us as, as a church. Year 2022 in America, doing ministry. Are we sometimes getting a little bit too comfortable? Are we getting too comfortable? Do we need a worm to eat through the stem of the plant that's protecting us so it challenges us a little bit so we can taste a little bit of maybe what God has in store for us? You know, I think Christian consumerism is, is, is real. I, I do love what Alpine's about. I do love that we have a mission here in Utah. I do love that we're reaching people. And I think there's some things that we're trying to keep us from becoming consumer, just producing consumers come in, spend an hour a week, listen to an okay message, great worship, 
and then go and be about our way. Go and extend the Sunday and spend the Sunday else however we want to and see you next Sunday for an hour. I'll give up an hour. And I can remember I had that mindset for many years, even as a Christian when I came to faith. But I think God has more for us. And some of us and many of us need to get out of our comfort zone. We need to get out of this little Christian bubble that we're in and and we need to be able to understand God's plan for the church here in Utah, Alpine Church specifically, and how God wants and he wants to use us and he has a plan. I mentioned this. I've heard many sermons over the past several years about um, discipleship. But early on, I said, I'm going to leave that to somebody else. And that is a command for his church because God cares about people. God cares, cared about you. He cares about you. He cares about everyone around us. And he wants to use his church. It's not the, the structure. It's the body of believers to accomplish his will, to accomplish his plans, which is having more people come to know him. That's the one thing we all have common in life that he wants all of us, including our kids, including our neighbors, to know God. And he's done everything so that he could be found by us. He's done it all. And he wants to use us in the process. I love how he kind of wraps up the letter. The question's a little bit confusing about it, but he says this. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there? It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh is more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness. Not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great nation? God cares about people. And do we care more about our comfort than we do the people around us? Because, friends, God wants to use you. God wants to use you so that you can point people to Jesus. And he has those plans for all of us because it wouldn't say go and make disciples. It wouldn't be really the the job responsibility of the church, the people, if certain people were excluded from that. He is involving all of us to be a part of what he's doing. And for some of us, that means we're going to have to get out of our comfort zone. We're going to have to get out and say, you know what, God, I'm going to trust in your plans, and I'm going to align with your plans. We need to stop saying no, and we, used to, we need to start saying yes. Use us, God. Use us for your purpose, for your glory. Help us draw people because he used Jonah, but we could see Jonah had a stubborn, stony heart towards the Ninevites. And I hope that our hearts are not hardened and stony against our neighbors. And I hope that we have hearts that want to align with God's heart, that our hearts say, God, we love people. We want to reach more people for you. And we get to be a part of it. He says, we're the church. We're supposed to lock arms and get into the community. And yes, love one another, be there for one another, bear one another's burdens, but help people come to faith. That's my hope and prayer, that we leave this Chapter 4, understanding what God did in Nineveh, we get the opportunity to do right here in the city of Syracuse and Layton and Clearfield and West Point. And we have this amazing opportunity because we serve an amazing, merciful, and gracious God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for you. Thank you that you first loved us. 
and that you love the comfort of you left the comfort of heaven, Lord, to come to this broken world so that we could have hope, so that we could be saved. And you went to the cross. We, we were undeserving people, Lord. Just like Jonah, we're undeserving. But you came for us. And you made it possible so that we could be made right with you. It is truly Jesus plus nothing, Lord, and we're grateful for that. Because we know if you left it up to us, heaven would be an empty place. If there was something we had to do, we would fall short. But Jesus, you did all the work. And my hope is that you would use us. First, I pray for those here that have yet to respond with a heart of repentance to you, Jesus. I pray that you would use these words, that the, the words of Nineveh would be encouraging, that no one's outside your mercy, regardless of what we've done. If we turn to you, you will hug us back. You will embrace us. Even though we don't deserve it, you're a loving father and you're perfect and you embrace us with loving arms. And I pray for those individuals here that have yet to receive that grace, Lord, that they would receive it. And Lord, I pray that we would be mission-minded, that we would link arms together, Lord, and we would go out into the community to reach people. Yes, we're here for those to walk in and we love the fact that we're here, that we exist but, Lord, I know that you're calling us also to go out into the community. And so give us the strength and give us the boldness. Give us the words. We want to honor you in this. We want to align with your plans. And for many of us, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult. But, Lord, it's going to be worth it because you're worth it. And so help us day by day, Lord, to honor you, to follow your leading in our lives. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.